0: Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Hipstorians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co historian Neil Feddersen-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go.
1: Evening, Neil. Well, Well, Derek Mulligan, we're good. How are you keeping?
0: Uh, Good. In temporary accommodation at the moment in uh, Rooski in County Longford. Uh, Waiting to move into our new pad in Drummond, which is underway. We'll take a little bit of time. Before it's ready, but there you go. Anyway, we won't let that get in the way of a good story. And this evening, we have Sean D. Naylor who actually went to the same school as I did and knew my granddad, who was headmaster. So world is small, that's for sure. And Sean is going to take us deep into the world of JSOC. That's the Joint Special Operations Command in America that essentially pulls together the resources of the special forces like Delta Force, SEAL Team 6 Mountain Rangers, um, and those type of guys. So a really exciting narrative in in his book, Relentless Strike. He'll take us through a little bit of that story and uh, hopefully we get to talk about all things uh, military and a little bit about, uh, about the past. so Boom, here let's go. go. Yeah, let's go. To this one. Hi, John.
2: Right. welcome. Well, it's great to be here, guys, uh, even virtually. Where are you joining us now this evening? I am joining you from uh, the small suburban town, almost village of Kensington, Maryland. Which is just a couple of miles outside of uh, a few miles just outside of the Washington D.C. But yes. what's the connection then between yourself and Derek? What's what's this all about? So we we each went to Saint Andrews College, Dublin, um, but not at the same time. So uh, I got a few, than me. That's
0: right, isn't
2: it? <laughs> well, honestly, when you look at it, the, the listeners, can't see Derek's. Uh, sort of uh, uh, grandfatherly white beard yeah he's getting into santa Claus mode it's it's a little disappointing to me or a little worrying that i'm i you know i'm i'm actually significantly older than derek i i did my leaving at saint andrews in 1984 and then i came to america right after that so okay so you're an irishman
1: in the big smoke then
2: yeah, well, tech, I mean, I'm not even that. It's it's, and and I, I'll I'll try not to take up the whole of the podcast explaining this, but uh, I'm my parents were English, but they met at Ireland when they were at Trinity, and they were in love with Ireland, and um, uh, so I was a uh, a young English boy who got yanked out of Surrey uh, on basically almost exactly my ninth birthday, and. Involuntarily moved to Dublin, which was probably the best thing that could have happened to me. I was a young English boy growing up in South Dublin uh, in the late seventies and early eighties. And in fact, I was I was Canadian born because I various circumstances I was I was born in Canada. So now right. I'm an American. Now I'm an American from Washington DC. That's the sort of the abbreviated long version of the story. And,
1: and you were you were thrown into the school of hard knocks in and St. Andrews then.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, not exactly. Um, I mean, it's uh, you know, for the benefit of 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 your listeners who uh, are not from Dublin or of or, or from the Republic, St. Andrews is a private school, fee paying school that just seemed like a normal middle class school when I was there, but but has gone grown in leaps and bounds since, and now like Bono's kids went there and mm. so forth and so on.
0: And and Sean's kept traveling after that. I don't think you've ever stopped. Um, you've been embedded with the well. I mean, firstly, you've been a reporter with the Army Times for twenty years, and you were embedded in all sorts of places: Somalia, Afghanistan,
2: Yemen. Yeah, no, that's that's correct. I was I was very lucky uh, when I um, got out of graduate school. I, I went did an undergraduate and graduate uh, work at uh, Boston University and. Then I came down to Washington, uh, looking for a job where I could write about the military and national security. And Army Times, which is a uh, an an independent sort of privately owned publication that covers the the, the United States Army, uh, had a uh, position open, and I I slotted right in, and it was a perfect fit for me. So I I stayed for more than twenty years there. And as you mentioned, I I I got to be an eyewitness to a a, a lot of military history, um, embedding with U.S. forces in in Somalia, in Haiti, in the Balkans, in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, just, you know, numerous times in the last two locations especially. I had a fantastic time there.
0: Well, the the book Relentless Strike, the, the Washington Post describes it as possibly or likely the best definitive history of how America's special operations community rose like a phoenix from the ashes of the fiasco of Desert One, which was 1980. This was the Jimmy Carter uh, job to go and rescue the 52 captive uh, embassy workers in Tehran, in Iran. And it was out of this that uh, the need arose.
2: Yeah no that's correct that operation uh failed and when the US you know military was and and US government was sort of picking over the bones of that failure really and trying to figure out how to succeed the next time a requirement like that arose they realized that the whole way that that had come together with um a sort of a pickup team and uh of of military elements who weren't used to working together, and an ad hoc sort of command and control arrangement um, was was the first thing that that had to change really. And they needed to have a permanent headquarters and a permanent staff that could run these sorts of operations and that could rehearse them on a on a regular basis as well. And so that's why. Before 1980 was out, had finished. Uh, Joint Special Operations Command had been had been established, and, and Delta Force uh, would have
0: was typically looked after the you know the hijacking of airplanes, cruiser high, you know or, uh, like those holiday cruise boats. They would have been SEAL teams and that type of thing. They got the Mountain Rangers involved as well try to blend the uh, skill set and use of all of these so they combine as a as a much stronger force uh, and be able to take on all of America's challenges abroad
2: yes I mean some of the some of the units that went on to become sort of primary components of 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 JSOC as, as Joint Special Operations Command is known didn't even exist when, when JSOC was established. So Delta Force was really the main one that that did. It had been established uh, a couple of years earlier in the army as a, a sort of a a specialist hostage rescue counterterrorism force. Um and it you know it had a key role in what would have been the hostage rescue op- operation operation eagle claw as as it was known the rangers existed but not as large a force as they as they became they weren't a regiment yet um uh, i think there was just one one battalion at the time I, I, I honestly can't remember but seal team 6 did not exist seal team 6 which became you know th- Seal Team Six, Delta Force, and a similar organization in Air Force Special Operations are referred to as Special Mission Units by the military. Uh, and of course, the the U.S. military makes everything an acronym and then pronounces that acronym. So they're SMUs or Smus, as uh, as as they're referred to in in the uh, in the military. But those most of those Smus came later and so did the you know an organisation i write a lot about in the book the 160th special operations aviation regiment which is an army unit uh, that does n- really nothing but support special operations missions and its its first battalion in particular supports only jsoc it's important uh, it, to to make the point for for the listener who's not sort of very familiar with the US Special Operations setup, that Joint Special Operations Command doesn't actually command and control all of the US Special Operations forces, but just a subset of them that are sort of reserved for very difficult counterterrorism uh, missions and, and campaigns. Um, so most of the army's Special Operations forces, which would be say in special forces groups, so-called green Berets, um, who are trained to work by with and through uh, host nation military forces. Um, uh, basically their, their, their main jobs are to either to help friendly military forces put down rebellions or help friendly rebels foment rebellions uh, in in enemy countries. They they don't fall under JSOC. They can be detailed to them or assigned to them, but they're not. They don't fall under them automatically in the same way that Delta Force does or SEAL Team Six, which is the the sort of the, the SEAL team in Naval Special Warfare Command that does the most. Uh, as you were saying, that you know originally designed to do things like taking hold of taking over a hijacked cruise liner or something like that but since since nine eleven they've been mostly employed in land counterterrorism campaigns.
1: right. You're mentioning some units there that are jumping out leaping out at me here, Sean, because you know some of them featured in in one of the most famous battles that American forces found themselves caught up in and led to arguably one of the best war movies ever made. Right. So we're talking about the Battle of Mogadishu in 1993 and, of course, the depiction of Black Hawk Down. So you're mentioning people like Delta, the Rangers. Those guys were involved in this operation, right?
2: Yes, they were. Basically, one squadron of Delta and uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember, but like one, I think one company or uh, or two companies of, of Rangers. They formed what was known to the public as Task Force Ranger. Um, for that battle, but it was really that that was to hide the fact that it was a JSOC task force with with Delta Force operators and the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment at at its at its core. Um, And one of the interesting things about that operation is how many of the participants in in that battle went on to achieve sort of very high rank in in the united states military scott miller one of the delta operators who was on uh, sort of officers uh junior fairly junior officer at the time who was on the ground went on to become a four-star general and was the last four-star general in in afghanistan uh prior to the uh, uh u.s military withdrawal from from that country last year uh he also ended up as a as a jsoc Commander, um uh, and uh, I beg your pardon, I a Delta Force Commander, JSOC Commander, and, and U.S. Special Operations Command Commander. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Special Operations Command commands all U.S. Special Operations Forces, at least administratively, including JSOC and its units, but also all the other U- special ops units that don't fall under JSOC. What, are, the, what so- are these guys
1: like, Sean? Have you met some of them personally? You've, you've- Oh, yeah,
2: I, I have. I mean... Um I, I I'm reluctant to generalize too much. They're all individuals and and even I would say inside some of the and units, the type of person that they've recruited might have changed over the decades. Um certainly back in the in the sort of eighties and nineties, and Delta was uh renowned as as a place with a lot of individuals in it, if you like and I don't mean that in the negative sense but um uh, folks who would not ha- take a regimented approach to anything but they really valued uh, uh the ability of uh, of an operator as, as they would call him to uh, to sort of come up with an out of left field idea that might, provide an elegant solution to a problem without you know necessarily risking a lot of bloodshed um, or something like that first of all you can't judge everybody by how they how they respond to a reporter these are all folks who were part of secret organizations who worked for other secret organizations their unit identity and a lot of their personal identity is l- is wrapped up in being secret and so I think that they're not always going to respond positively to somebody who says hey look I'm, I'm writing a book about you guys and I'd like you to mm. sit down and tell me as much as you can about this battle or that unit or, or whatever the case may be but I found a, a lot of them to be very friendly open certainly very professional on the other end of the spectrum i've had two or three folks who refused to even shake my hand when mm. you know, we've been introduced at events then i've had other folks who have invited me into their home it it runs the gamut mm. uh, i i would i would say i mean look they're all i mean there's a few things you can say about them in general especially when they are before they've retired they're all in terrific shape <laughs> um they're they're usually very intelligent and uh you know and they're very mission focused um, you know and if there's one risk uh, and this goes beyond Jsoc in a lot of military organizations it's knowing how to straddle that sort of fine line between enthusiasm and capability right. um
1: yeah so uh, so as a reporter you were kind of you were never going to be part of the the family I suppose you were like a like a guest
2: yeah I mean at 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 best some of these folks both both the enlisted and and the officers that the non the sergeants and the and the sort of the colonels and the generals understand that it's important for um history to be recorded and stories to be told uh, and to be told accurately hmm. um and you know there are others who have been raised in a culture where you don't talk and you know, one of the interesting things I think about about JSOC in particular and even the wider U.S. special operations community is that they have had a very hard time shedding the culture of what I would call with, with regard to public information about mm-hmm. uh, shedding the culture of Delta Force from the late 1970s around which so much of this was built even as the, the realities have completely changed. So in you know in the late 70s early, certainly the early 80s, the number of people who could tell you about JsOC with any degree of reliability would have been in the hundreds. You fast forward 40 years, and especially after all of these organizations have grown, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have passed through the different organizations and headquarters. Those organizations grew massively in the wake of, of 9-11. Countless people have written books out of those units, not countless, but quite a few, you know, former Rangers, um, and especially. And the information age, the digital age has made it so much easier to find information. And yet they still, they still um sort of adhere I feel culturally to the sort of what I call the fight club rules of JSOC which are you know the first rule of JSOC is you can't talk about JSOC which is an advantage once you've written a book about JSOC and people want to learn about it then they have to go to your book uh, to a degree but it I do feel like they probably need to put their heads together and and come up with a different approach to how they engage with with the world publicly.
1: It kind of reminds me of that experience but, that uh, Evan Wright, the the Rolling Stone journalist, famously had written in 2004, Generation Kill, when he was embedded um, with the Marines. In Iraq. He was in in various experiences. He was, he was treated probably at best with disdain, you know, and and certainly a degree of suspicion as well. So naturally, the military. And the media, they're not natural bedfellows, right? I mean, that there's always going to be a, a distinction there. But you, you seem to have managed to cross those lines somewhat because you've been invited back repeatedly and spent a good yeah, so, I mean, I would, time
2: with them. Yeah, I mean, so I want to I, I want to make sure that there isn't a misunderstanding about all of those embeds that I had, none of them were with JSOC humans. Mm, yep. I did embed with some. Army special forces units in in both Haiti and in Afghanistan on a number of occasions. JSOC itself, to the best of my knowledge, and I'm I mean I'm no longer covering them day in day out, doesn't embed reporters. Much as I wish that they that they would have done, but I think the fact that I was a known quantity to the larger military and that I certainly paid my dues in terms of you know, being in war zones, covering combat operations and, and so forth gave me credibility with with the uh uh the JSOC folks. Um so I think that was that was my advantage.
1: Absolutely. And, and but when the, you were embedded with those units, like the, you shared the dangers with them, right? Oh yeah. Yes. Like can you can you tell the listeners a little bit about perhaps what would have been the most frightening or the most dangerous situation so you found yourself in.
2: Uh there's a few you know, the book that I wrote before Relentless Strike was called Not a Good Day to Die The Untold Story of Operation Anaconda. And that was a book that um, uh, was about a, a major battle, the first major battle of, of the war in Afghanistan, really, that involved a lot of U.S. troops. And that was in March 2002 with troops from the 101st Airborne Division air assault and uh, 10th Mountain Division. And it also had a, a Big JSOC piece of it, which I describe in both of those books. We were getting, we, you know, I, I, I air assaulted into that battle, which means I, you know, I, I an air assault is when you ride a helicopter in, into the fight, um, as a you know, as opposed to an airborne operation when you jump out of a plane with a parachute. So I, you know, I I, I, I went in with an infantry company by helicopter on the first night of the uh, of the battle, and you know, the, I stayed in the valley with them for two or three days on on the battlefield and I don't want to overstate it I wasn't up close and personal getting shot at all the time but we our position got mortared and it got various types of uh direct fire aimed at us you know heavy machine gun fire uh I think rocket propelled grenade and so forth so I mean that's an example of one in the invasion of Iraq in the spring of 2003 uh I was uh, with the lead cavalry squadron for the, the main US invasion force in a cavalry squadron. That was a fantastic ex- experience as a, as a reporter. And there was a quite a lot of combat involved in that, especially over one sort of uh, two-day period. I'll give you a, another example from the same invasion of, of what might have been the most dangerous thing that happened. And it actually didn't involve anybody shooting uh, at us at all. And that was on the first night of the invasion. So I think we started one night. So this is sort of like 24 hours into the invasion. And the squadron is just moving across flat, flat, hard packed uh, desert. Haven't encountered any uh, Iraqi military or paramilitary forces at all at this point. And I'm in the back of a Humvee drifting off to sleep the driver of, of the humvee is is wearing uh, night vision goggles which are very fatiguing to use over, especially back then over long periods of time i mean they're they sort of are tiring just to your eyes to keep looking through them and focusing on things but they're also heavy on on your on your head uh, at the same time so i i woke up in the middle of the night in the back seat of this humvee and it was a sort of a cargo humvee we, 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 sort of a type of humvee that has a lot of all of our luggage was in the sort of thrown into a sort of like a, a flat bed in in the back but it wasn't a very it wasn't like some Humvees you'll see a very thick metal you know very sturdy this isn't one of those it it, it was sort of canvas basically and uh, a couple of straps holding all the luggage in in, in 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 the back duffel bags and stuff like that so i wake up in and i'm i'm in the back seat there's two guys in the front seat that's it the other the other seat i think had a big radio or some other gear on it and i wake up and i'm like ah oh, something's not right you know in the in a half second you know my brain registers that there's something a little odd about what i'm waking up to nobody else, nobody's saying anything and i realize Again, like within 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 a second, that what's wrong is that the Humvee is not in contact with the ground at all, and w- what had happened was that there was a a wadi, uh, a sort of a dry up uh, river bed that uh, some engineers that were in the very forward elements of the of the of the column that we were in had marked out with some white what is called in the military engineer tape, some white tape and a couple of sort of like traffic bollards to basically try to get the convoy to turn at right angles so that they don't go into the wadi. And the the driver of the Humvee I was with had just missed this somehow. And so we had gone sailing off and I, you know, in my memory this was a very deep wadi. It probably wasn't, but it was it was probably it was enough depth to go airborne for some seconds. And so it's probably like ten feet deep or something like that. So I wake up as we're airborne, going into this thing, and I'm like, "Oh, whatever's happening, this is going to hurt," you know. And I sort of like involuntarily, you know, like crumpled my, my my body, and boom, we hit the 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 ground. And the the two guys in the front, who fortunately fortunately we were all wearing our uh, helmets, and we were all um, wearing our seatbelts, which is because at some points in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, depending on what you were doing in a Humvee, you didn't want to be wearing your seatbelts because it could be that somebody drops a grenade in the window or you hit, uh, you know, you know, somehow that something causes a Humvee to catch on fire and you've got like a split second to get out of it. And the seatbelts in Humvees, at least back then, this is almost 20 years ago, could be quite tricky to, to unlatch. Uh, Fortunately, we were all strapped in and with our helmets on. Their helmets went boom off the front of the sort of Perspex windshield, which left two spider webs on each side of the front windshield, um, which really looked like some, you know, Iraqi sniper had engaged the windshield perfectly. But in fact, it was their helmets um, banging off the front. And then the straps holding the luggage in snapped and so all the luggage came flying in basically burying me in my seat the vehicle is laid on the ground and then you know you know it's sort of you're coming around and you're like oh guess i'm not dead and then uh you could hear like the vehicles behind us you know had obviously stopped and you know people come running and like oh my god are those guys okay did you see that and we were all okay. The two guys in the front had sort of headaches I think for the rest of the the day. Um and uh you know the the straps never never worked again to hold the luggage in properly, but uh we were all okay and the most amazing thing was the vehicle, the Humvee just started up and drove away. Wow. And you know, I I always thought that I missed a trick by not being a spokesperson for AM General, the contractor who who made the a humvee in fantastic
1: uh, and, and the first recorded case of a flying humvee which they're not designed right, to do
2: exactly yeah so that i mean that's just to say that you never know when something in a combat zone is is dangerous and you don't really know when you're driving around baghdad in a humvee how often has has your humvee gone 3 inches to the right of a pressure plate you know ied a, a pressure plate bomb that that could have blown it up you know yeah. Absolutely.
1: And
0: what sort of effect do, does do those experiences have on you? I mean, do they have a, a lasting impression? Are you feeling the same feeling um, as as when it happened when you're describing it to us?
2: No, I mean I, I you know, touch wood, I, I I I think I've managed to avoid any what i would consider extraordinarily traumatic experiences ever what what causes trauma to some people doesn't cause trauma to others and and vice versa so, so i've never as some reporters have that i that i know i've never had an uh you know an american service member with whom i was embedded shot by a sniper in front of me you mm. know or beside me I've never had a, a car bomb blow up the vehicle that I'm in or blow up the vehicle before or after. I mean, so I, I was still in my early to mid thirties when uh you know the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were, were kicking off. And, you know, to me it was still, you know, an adventure. That's still how I look back on it, really.
1: It it, it strikes me as you're extremely lucky then.
2: Yeah, I was. I, I was. I think, I mean, I've often thought about this up to and including the invasion of Iraq. The units that I would go into a uh, theater with would I, was usually the first major army unit to go in. Um, and of course, in the 90s, a lot of these operations were more peacekeeping. Somalia originally was supposed to be something like that. Um, so, but the, the army tended not to send its Know weakest units and weakest commanders in first, right? So I was generally with very well-led, well-trained, well-equipped forces, particularly in Operation Anaconda and in the invasion of, of Iraq. I'm sure that was a a factor in the the folks around me staying safe was just you know how good they were and how and how how well how well led they were at, at, at you know tactically. But yeah, as as things went on, I, I was I was very lucky. I, I I went to um I was supposed to in two thousand and seven I think embed with the the guy who'd been the company commander uh, uh of the infantry company that I was embedded with in. Uh, Operation Anaconda, and he was now helping train the uh, Iraqi National Police, I believe, or one of the Iraqi police forces. And just just a, a, a week or two before, I was already in Baghdad embedded with other units, and I was going to switch over to his unit. And his Humvee was hit by one of the Iranian-made uh, EFPs, explosively formed projectiles that were extremely lethal bombs, that the Ar- iranians were supplying um some of the insurgents in iraq with and he was the only guy to get out of his humvee alive and he was very badly burned in that stayed in the army to his to his credit but uh uh you know so i mean that you know if, if i'd embedded with him two weeks earlier that i would have been in that humvee i mean yeah, there's lots of yeah. Stories like that, and, and and other reporters have far more of them than I do, I, I suspect, from those years.
1: It's astonishing, Sean. We spoke earlier on this podcast to uh, Toby Harbin, isn't that right, Derek? Um, yeah. He was embedded with the with the Marines, I believe, in, during the Battle of Fallujah, and he was talking about the section that he was embedded with. I think he mentioned out of those 10 guys, I think were, were eight of them killed, Derek, is that right? Like it, was, it, was, like that. it was something like that. something like that. Like he, 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 knew personally four or five of these guys who who were subsequently killed in action. He knew them personally, you know, uh, uh, to chat to and whatnot. So it, your experiences sounds literally, to for want of a
2: better pun, is that you, you dodged a bullet there? On a yeah. Of- no. I, I, I mean, I think, I think so. My last time embedded with forces, I think, was late 2010. I can't remember. Maybe in some summer 2010 or 2011. And I would I would go back and do it again, if, you know, really? if, if I had the opportunity. All the way through the, especially Iraq, but you know Afghanistan as well. I mean, there were days in Iraq where you could stand in in the the what was called BIAP, you know, Baghdad International Airport, which was also uh, sometimes called the Victory Base Complex because there was a big a big base called Victory. And FOB Victory and Ford Operating Base Victory, and then a series of sort of satellite bases around that, or camps that had been built. But you could stand there in two thousand six, two thousand seven, and just hear stuff blowing up around Baghdad. Um, I mean, the, one of the U.S.I. was embedded with um, uh, in in you know in in Iraq. This would have been two thousand six. We'd been out in Anbar. Um, this was a striker cavalry squadron equipped with the sort of uh, uh, armored striker vehicles. Uh, then they, instead of being uh, sent home at the end of their tour, they got extended and sent to, to Baghdad. So I went with them. And one day uh, we were all in the headquarters sort of tent um, and our sleeping tent for the I, I was sleeping with the uh, in the same tent as the as the staff officers, the junior staff officers from this one, a an IED, uh, not an IED, rather, but a, a rocket came in to the camp and impacted just literally a couple of feet from from our tent and didn't go off. So you know, it it buried you know it buried itself in a in a great big crater by by the tent. But you know, we we dodged that one twice. I mean, if it had come in in the middle of the night and gone off, a bunch of us would have been killed. But they sent yourself. it on the middle of the day when no one was there and uh, and it didn't go off. So, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of, of you know, of cases like that, like I said, where you, you can just think about how fortunate you were. But you'd go back and do it
1: again. Like you would go back and you said, you know, older and wiser. I mean, yeah. you know, war, war is a young, young man's game or a young woman's game. You'd, yeah. you'd go I'm back.
2: Not, I would, but I wouldn't. I'm not... For the right story. I'm not desperate to do it. Um, in the way that you know, when I worked for Army Times, that you know, my whole job was covering the army and particularly the the war making parts of the army, if you like. And and uh uh you know, so I, I viewed that as my job and, and that and that I needed to to be out there covering those those things. And I worked very very hard to arrange the embeds and to make sure that I was the person that the army put in certain units to make sure that I was sort of maximising the opportunity. Yeah, I've also gotten married in the meantime, so I'd, I'd sort of discuss it with my wife before I I did it. But if I was working for somebody, or if you know, I have uh, I have a substack now, which we can get into uh, later with that I'm running with a with a colleague. Um, And if somebody came to us and said, hey, does one of you want to go in bed with JSOC in Syria or something like that? I'd I'd say absolutely, you know, definitely.
0: But with the with the evolution of warfare, you may not have to travel too far far. Maybe a couple of blocks away, and you'd be sitting in a living room with a little control pad in your hands and flying drones around. Right, and it certainly yeah. gives uh, an awful lot of power to a very centralized force. And even with the evolution of JSOC from 1980, where you've got these you know these groups that were. Acting independently, now coming under one roof, and the war making I mean, you mean, use that those words—war making capacity mm. of uh, of the United States, it's almost grown into something that is like. A, and you, you were talking about having to, to have a, a public relations policy. Mm. You know, it's like a, it is really like a world police, or like the you know 2005 movie World's Police,
2: whereby it now needs that. Is that what you're saying? I, I don't know whether. Well, I, it's not my place to say whether. Either the world or America needs it um as as a reporter JsOC evolved and I describe in in some detail in in relentless strike you know how and why this happened but 911 um and and the uh, uh the years that that, that that followed but it's you know the immediate period after 911 basically were a catalyst for the transformation of of JsOC um it required both the, the perceived need for a, a much larger counterterrorism organization that could not just do iterative occasional missions of short duration but could actually wage a counterterrorism campaign you know 24/7 365 days a year and then ultimately multiple counterterrorism campaigns in different theaters of the globe, 365 days a year. On the, on the one hand, there was that perceived requirement on the part of the Department of the Defense. And then on the other, there was the the primary individual who made that happen, who, who was uh, General Stan McChrystal, who became commander of, of JSOC a, a couple of years after 9-11 um, And uh, and really transformed the way the organization uh, uh, the the organization operated and thought of itself. It is a beast for sure, and and you managed to share some tasty. I suppose tidbits or or
0: secrets perhaps, because certainly uh US SOCOM put the word out to its personnel about its uh well, I suppose the oaths that it had taken to protect certain protocols about sensitive information. So you certainly got
2: into uh the truth of it in the book, I think. What they did was they they got their hands on some uh advanced copy uh of of the book and uh they went th- through it and every single individual who was named in the book, now not named as a source for the book necessarily, just as a character, as a as a person in whatever vignette or battle or op- operation I was I was discussing. Um and uh, some of whom I you know may not have even have been in J- JSOC at all. And they sent them a letter basically a basically a packet of material that purported to be looking out for their best interests by saying that they were at risk of identity theft. Okay. And it's never really clear to me why they would be at any more risk of that than anyone else that's ever been mentioned in any other book about current affairs. But that um, in, in addition, once you read down the letter, and of course, somebody, you know, shared the letter with me pretty quickly, um, it sort of said. Words to the effect of, you know, don't don't discuss the events depicted in the book with anyone to include your family or anybody else. And the media might reach out to ask you about it. Don't discuss it with them, and 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 so forth. And they, you know, different different uh, organizations went went further. There was a um, uh, some organizations were they there. Personnel were told you're not allowed to read the book, or own it. Owning it is is the equivalent of being in possession of classified material. My understanding is the you know JSOC got the FBI involved, trying to figure out you know how some of the information got out. I got sort of paid the a, a terrific um, uh, sort of backhanded compliment uh by by one of the uh JSOC commanders uh you know after he'd moved on he gave a speech in uh a a, a talk in Washington DC uh which I wasn't present for but where he he described the book as the mother load of information that should have never ever gotten out of our camp. <laughs> and so you
0: know, I mean, that's uh, can't that say says it all.
2: That. Yeah, I wish, that's I wish sexy. it, I wish, I wish it said that in time for us to put that on the back of the paper. Ah, yeah, classic. That would, have uh, that, that would have sold it by the truckload, am Sure, it did.
1: Anyway, Sean, you come on to some of these interviews. Sometimes you're going, I can't wait to get into this, and they just fly. I mean, these this interview's just flown. I think we could, time we, up. yeah, I can't, I can't believe that you know, time's gone so quickly. I feel like we're only scratching the surface surface here a little bit Derek
0: yeah touch unfortunately but uh, we'll have to have you back Sean we'll have oh, to get I'm you back happy, Sean I, I think we've only do it
2: may I ask a short favor may I may I yes. may I take 30 seconds to plug my Substack? oh go for it yeah Please so do. Uh, uh together with Jack Murphy who's a former uh, US special operations uh soldier and um also co-hosts the uh the team house podcast uh, which you can find on YouTube, uh, Jack and I are joining forces to put out a uh, a substack called The High Side. It's thehighside.substack.com. Uh, those of you who are really into the national security world in the United States might know that the high side is, is the slang term for the classified sort of email and computer system. So uh, uh, borrowing from that, we're uh, uh, The high side exists. It has no journalism on it as I speak, but it will very soon. Um, uh, you, you can sign up for a free subscription, but uh, be warned, unless our plans change drastically, once we start actually putting journalism on it, we're going to ask people to pay for it so and why uh, not but, and and yeah, why yeah. not you got to pay for good
1: journalism that's just exactly. the fact folks that's just the yeah. fact folks yeah. there you go folks check it out just there as sean outlined author uh you know adventurer military expert and a former saint andrews boy you got it all yeah. here in one go folks What? <laughs> thank you so much john
0: uh, thank you guys
1: okay take care there we go my gosh that just flew. And I have to apologise. I think I was I was starting to dominate that conversation there, Derek, because I just the, just wanted to find out more about that chap.
0: Oh, I know, because he's doing exactly what you would love to do. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> he really is. I would love to be in a Humvee, not necessarily flying into the desert air, but I love this spot. I really do. Yeah. I, d- yeah. I don't know. If I, well, I say I do, and then I would probably get there and I'd want to go home again. Um, <laughs>
0: It's safe on the podcast. Neil. It's I safe doubt. on the
1: podcast, living your adventures through other people. Great, for that, great way. Yeah. <laughs> again, thanks for tuning in. And, you know, yeah, we're getting a great reaction so far, aren't we, Derek? It's very encouraging and we're loving it. We're loving yeah, it. It's
0: really encouraging. Yeah. So please, please do any any sort of feedback you like at all, any sort of donation you like at all, small small change, small, we'll do
1: a and- cup of coffee. Yeah
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. That's it. That's it. So uh, <laughs>
0: thanks again. Check us on
1: all our social media. Thanks very much. And good night from the Hipstorians.
0: I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here we plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future as you can probably appreciate it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves there is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation and we would very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here